Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is merging with the universe. My guest is Dr. Kenneth Pelletier, a friend whom I've known for a half century. He's an integrative medicine pioneer and author of many books, including Mind is Healer, Mind is Slayer, Longevity, Sound Mind, Sound Body, The Best Alternative Medicine, New Medicine, Complete Family Health Guide, and most recently, about which we've done an interview not long ago called Change Your Genes, Change Your Life. Although I've known Ken for a long time, and he's the person who introduced me to a man who became a very important mentor in my life, Arthur Young, I didn't know that in 1967, Ken had had an experience that uh, I will call cosmic consciousness about which we'll be talking today. So I'm learning new things about my old friend who is based in California. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Ken. It's a real pleasure to be with you once again. Thank you. It's good to be with you again. We're going to be uh, reviewing your career and, in particular, talking about an event that occurred so long ago, it's before I ever met you, and that was in the early 1970s. And it was considerably earlier, but yes, uh, before we even met each other. So we've known each other a very long time at, at this point. I think I did my first interview with you many decades ago. That was on um, on your original program. Yeah, I, I do remember that. It was right after uh, my research with the adept meditators, and yeah. a very good conversation at that point uh, on thinking aloud. Yeah, on on the original thinking aloud series. That video, incidentally, is still available. Okay, I'll have to go back <laughs> and look at it. <laughs> But but I confess, I was surprised to learn from you recently that you had had a near-death experience in 1969 and, and that it was a very transformative experience. I, I'm assuming it sort of set the pattern for your subsequent career. Um, it was actually 1967. And, uh, you know, so that's 54 years ago. And... I have never talked about it, except with a few um, close friends. And when you uh, did your recent interview with Eben Alexander and uh, Karen Newell, um, it, it gave me, I guess, the courage or encouragement to talk with you as, as a longtime friend to really trust you to talk about this. Um, and this isn't all from, I mean, some of this is from memory, but I actually wrote it down at the time it occurred. And uh, I, the first person I ever told about this was Stan Groff, uh, when Stan and Joan Groff were holding a seminar at the uh, Esalen uh, Institute. And 
I, I told Stan about it because of his knowledge about altered states and unusual mental occurrences. He in turn introduced me to his brother, Paul Groff, who's a psychiatrist um, in Canada. Uh, Paul in turn introduced me to another faculty member, I believe at McGill, who was writing a book on near-death experiences. And uh, that faculty member, whose name honestly I've forgotten at this point, uh, asked me if I would contribute my experience. So I did. And so it's, it's written down and I went back and I reviewed it and reread it and it refreshed my mind and brought back uh, many details that I probably would have forgotten about since it was so long ago. So these are, anyway, long story made short, it was 54, 50 some odd years ago, but it still is completely vivid. Um, events that occurred at that time have yet to occur, um, uh, sort of a, a prequel. And instead of like for you, it was a prequel to my entire life as part of the experience. So uh, parts of it are still to come. Can we talk about uh, maybe the um, particular uh, events that led up to it? Just to set a context for it, um, between, uh, I was in an Ivy League school in the East and two friends, one friend who had been a childhood friend, uh, we were in school together and between our sophomore and junior year, uh, my longtime friend uh, went to Stanford Summer School. And after he'd been at Stanford for about a month, he called me up and said, you know, all that uh, sex, drugs, rock and roll that we keep hearing about again, this is 1967. Um, it's happening here. And I was, I was really intrigued. I had no idea really what he was talking about. I mean, I grew up in a small town in Rhode Island on the beach, uh, raised as a French Catholic and was an altar boy, had a very traditional sheltered small town, New England upbringing. Um, but I was intrigued. So a friend and I had a, I had a little, uh, Red Triumph uh, TR3, if you remember those uh, sports cars. Uh, so a, a friend and I decided we would drive out to uh, to Stanford to see what he met. So we went to uh, uh, his dorm and we would go back and forth to San Francisco. Uh, and at that time, we again, we didn't realize that that was the summer of love. If you remember, right? 1967 became known as the uh, Think Time magazine. Uh, labeled it as the summer of love, but it was an extraordinary time. I mean, there were, you know, free rock concerts in the, in Golden Gate Park uh, every weekend. There was the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane, um, Janis Joplin, The Doors, um, Timothy Leary was was uh, distributing LSD by the handful, it was legal at the time. And so there's no prohibitions. Uh, Nureyev was there in, in residence. Um, so it was, it was just quite a, a kind of an, a magical time. Um, and and when, uh, when, when Stanford Summer School came to a close, we, the three of us decided we'd go to Haight-Ashbury. 
we'd go to ground zero. Uh, and so we got an apartment at the corner of Haight and Masonic, which, as you know, in San Francisco, was one block over from Haight-Ashbury. So we're really at the dead center, summer of love. Uh, Haight-Ashbury is where we uh, took up our, our summer residence. Um, and I guess I should go, well, I guess the next step is we went to a party uh, one night. There's a party every night in Haight-Ashbury in the summer of 67. And um, at the party, there was a, an attractive blonde journalist. So of course, I was attracted to her. Um, and she was accompanying a short, dark-haired, heavy, not very attractive um, young woman. And uh, I kept being attracted to her, and I didn't know why. It was really um, disorienting for me. I didn't know quite what was, uh, what was going on, but it was very disorienting. And uh, I went into the kitchen of this apartment where the party was going on, and the two of them came into the kitchen, and the heavy, dark-haired, heavy woman was standing in front of one of these spun a steel, a glass, steel, um, stainless steel refrigerators. And as she stood in front of it, I was looking at her and all of a sudden the, the refrigerator changed and the whole universe opened up. It was like looking at the Milky Way in a night sky. Um, the refrigerator disappeared. All I saw was this brilliant, infinitely beautiful starry sky and uh, sensed myself kind of floating off into it before I just jerked myself back and just, you know, I must have obviously had a look of surprise on my face. And the, the, the journalist who turned out to be a journalist asked me what had just happened. And I told her, and she said, now that's very interesting. She said, I'm following this young woman around and I'm writing, um, a lengthy article about the unusual effect that she has on certain people. And it sounds as though she's had that effect on you. And so we talked a bit about what had occurred and told me a little bit about the influence she had had on other, other people. Um, so it got late and uh, the, uh, the, the, the woman who had this impact on people said, I need to take the journalist back to her apartment. Would you like to, you know, take a drive with us? And I, I said, sure, you know, it'd be, be fun. And we dropped the woman off. And then the uh, woman, the woman who had this unusual impact said, would you like to come back to my parents' house? They live in Sausalito. And it's just, and I'd never been across the Golden Gate Bridge. So I said, sure, you know, it's a great, great journey to go across the Golden Bridge. May I ask if you were intoxicated at this point? No, uh, I, I, no, no drugs. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, that's what made me really take a step back and say, what is going on here? Because um, it wasn't 
a drug experience. It wasn't an alcohol experience. Honestly, I didn't know what it was. Um, and that's why I took the scan broth uh, after it happened. So no, totally clear, straight. Um, probably had some wine, but I was not, certainly not intoxicated. It sounds like it has something to do with the influence then of this woman. Yes. And, and just the detail, when we were leaving, um, I, would, I had just started a, a class in Zazen meditation. And one of the um, anchors, if you will, in Zazen is a, a bell that when you need to remember to come back to your three-dimensional place in a room, you would just ring a bell, ring a bell, and it would take you back to where the bell was, and then you were uh, back from your meditation. And I was carrying this little bell with me, and as we left, it jammed in the, in the door, and the door locked behind me. And so I couldn't get the bell out of the door jam, and I was struggling with it, and she said, um, you don't need that. And this is a virtual quote. He said, you will always know where you are from here on out. And I, at the time, did not know what she was saying. But that was pretty much a direct quote of what she said to me. So it was, it was kind of all of these little, the, the refrigerator thing, that statement from her, um, what the journalist told me, it was just, I, I could tell it was turning into a strange experience, but um, yeah. but a good one. Mm -hmm. So we, as we approached the Golden Gate Bridge, she said, we were in a Mercedes that had a sunroof. And she said, you know, I, I always have liked putting the sunroof back and looking up at the sky as I'm crossing the, uh, the bridge. And I've almost had accidents doing that. And again, I didn't make anything of that statement at the time. So she said, why don't you just lay back, I'll open the sunroof and just enjoy the view of your first trip over the Golden Gate Bridge. So I did. She, she was driving, I assume. She was driving. Yep, it was her car. And um, so I, as I laid my head back on the seat and I looked up at the Golden Gate Bridge or the uprights, the vertical uh, struts for the Golden Gate. And I found myself being lifted, lifted with each progressively taller upright until suddenly I, I kind of popped up and out. Again, I'm, I'm reconstructing this, but at the time I didn't understand what was happening, but I popped up and out of my body. And I found myself looking down on the Golden Gate Bridge from the altitude of a jet, an airplane. I mean, I've landed many times in San Francisco now, so I know exactly what that view looks like. And that's what it was. I was looking down on the Golden Gate Bridge from an altitude of an airliner approaching the city. And it, it you know, startled me. And that startled, then I started to see the descending uprights of the uh, Golden Gate Bridge coming back down. And I felt myself constricting into a small, dense, cold body. 
very contained, very small, very thick, dense, um, immobile, um, kind of dead feeling, honestly. And I must, again, I'm, this, I must have yelped or said, you know, oh, or, or just let out a, you know, a, a surprise. And uh, she looked over at me and she said, just relax, just be calm. And as she said that, the second set of uprights of the Golden Gate started to come in. And I followed those up again. And this time, when I popped out and saw myself above the bridge, I started asking, what is going on? What's taking place? My mind was just flooded with questions. Um, and I would get answers. As soon as I would ask a question, I would get an answer. And I would ask, and pretty soon it was just this, this buzz of questions and answers until finally I didn't even have to ask questions. I was just getting answers to questions that were of, of profound theological and other reality significance. Um, and then I began to get images of my life. It was like a prequel. I began to see specific events, dates, times, places, people that were yet to happen in my life and, and have yet to happen. There's still remaining things that I saw in this vision and the aftermath that have still not occurred. Uh, in fact, one was really quite recent. Um, and, and, and so I, I saw my life. It was, a, it was, again, a vision of my entire life. And as I began to ask, what, and I, again, I was questioning, what is this? What's going on? How am I seeing my life? I haven't lived it yet. And all of a sudden, there was just this explosion into a soft, white, uh, all enveloping light. Um, and uh, just a sense of merging with the universe. God, goddess, I don't know how, really don't have any words for it, but it was of love, love and peace in the deepest, most profound sense of the, those words. And um, I must have yelled out in ecstasy. And I was hearing this, the ohm. I was hearing the vibration of the universe. I didn't know what it was at the time, but I was hearing this high-pitched drone. And I, I must have yelled uh, uh, in ecstasy. And as I did that, I started to see the descending set of uprights on the second part of the Golden Gate. And in my mind, I thought, oh, I was trying to make sense of this. Oh, there's been a car accident. Um, I'm dead. I've died. 
uh, and that I had transitioned out of my body and I, and I was okay. But if I didn't accept the transition, then I was going to have to go through the impact and feel my body breaking and bones breaking and bleeding and going step by step through the death of my physical body. And with that thought, I immediately got catapulted back up into the light. Um, and again, just this ecstasy and a complete, complete dissolution of the fear of death. It was just gone. And it still is gone to this very day. I have no fear of death. I've had near-death experiences since this one. Um, but that just vanished. Fear of death just went away. And then shortly after that, there was an impact. And it was in the days before seat belts. And I did get thrown up against the dash and bashed my head and um, not terribly badly hurt, but, you know, enough to and it wake you out of a reverie, that's for sure. And um, it wasn't a bad accident. And we were able to, you know, disentangle and kind of move on. And when we got to her parents' house in Sausalito, um, their house was very Chinese. They were not Chinese by lineage, but the house was decorated in Chinese artifacts and been to China many times. And the guest room had an opium, an old opium couch. And she said, well, you can stay here. And if you like, you can, you know, the opium couch is very comfortable. And just, you know, make yourself at home, make yourself comfortable. And for the rest of the night, the, the uh, events, the people, the dates of my whole life just continued to unfold and repeat and be amplified in, in detail and in substance until the early morning. And then she, she, you know, woke me up and said, you know, I need to go back into the city. Do you want, you know, let me give you a ride back. And we drove back into the city and she dropped me off. And that was, that pretty much contains um, that particular experience uh, of uh, the NDE. And as I mentioned, I, I, I was totally, I mean, it took me weeks, if not months, and still many years subsequently to make sense of it, to understand what had happened. Nothing in my, as a physicist major, physics major, nothing in my upbringing or, or education ever um, prepared me for this. And, uh, and as I mentioned, I told Stan Groff about it. He, he and Joan Groff were married at the time and conducting um, a program at Esalen. And Stan was the only person I knew who knew anything about these altered states at the time. And I told him about it. And he then referred me to his brother, Paul, who's a psychiatrist in Canada. 
And Paul subsequently referred me to another friend of his who was writing a book. And this is 1967 on near-death experiences. And, and that person asked me if I would contribute my experience. And uh, I, I said, yes, but I'll only do it anonymously, which I did. And then actually in preparation for our talk today, I went back and reread uh, the description. So it, it, it brought back a lot of what we've been talking about. By the way, I'm, I'm sorry to have gotten so, I didn't realize when you get so emotional, um, it still has power. Yeah, it's it seems in incredibly profound, and and what you experienced uh, strikes me as uh, similar to what uh, P. M. H. Atwater ha has written about in her book called Future Memory, where you, you're seeing the future as if as if it was a memory. I don't know that book, but yes, in, in my mind, I suppose you know a life. You're about life review. This is like a life prequel. And, yeah. and it was interesting because see, and I, I've, I've thought about this. Is this like predestination? Is this a lack of free will? And the only way I could describe it is, let's say today, being here in San Francisco, I knew that two months from now I was going to be in Paris. And that's all I knew. I didn't know how I was going to get there or why or what I would do when I was there. And it's like these life events were, have, have been like that. Uh, I'll see a particular place or a person or a date or an occurrence, meeting with a significant person, a significant death, a significant triumph. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of the, the benchmarks are, are set. But the free will is how you get there. How, you know, there's the what, which are the benchmarks and the how, which is the unfolding of your life between the benchmarks, is the only way I've been able to uh, make sense of it. But this idea of a future vision of prequel um, would not ordinarily make sense to me, but it does having had this experience. Well, it, it's really quite remarkable. And you know, as as an outsider looking at your life as someone who's known you for decades, I'd have to say you have had a remarkable career. It has been, and this um, experience influenced me in a sense of not only was the fear of death gone, but the fear of fear was gone. Um, I didn't fear talking about this. I, I just didn't. It felt immodest somehow to uh, talk about this, although it made me special or different. But, but the fear of fear went away. And so when I did my early research with adept meditators, um, it was a very conventional problem, which is to elaborate how the voluntary and autonomic nervous system interacted and how people could self-regulate bleeding and pain and infection. Well, again, this is 19, in the early, mid-1960s, unheard of. Um, so it, it, it didn't deter me that this was something odd to study adept meditators. Uh, and uh, so, and, and that's been 
something I've done all the way through my work, which is uh, encouraged by meeting people like Arthur Young, having studied an adept meditator like Jack Schwartz in my early research, has emboldened me to, Arthur calls it, not be constricted by the local reality, to not accept what is defined as real, um, as acceptable, as the norm, um, without asking, is it really? And, and always challenging what you think you believe and what you think you know with your own experiences or with a different perception. If I may, I'd like to go back to the woman who you were with. It seemed as if she had some role in triggering this experience. Did you maintain any contact with her? You know, that's great. No, I didn't. I mean, I, I was totally um, disoriented is the only way to describe it. Um, for weeks after this happened, I, I couldn't even talk about it. I, my my mind just felt completely changed. Um, I was one person before this happened and another after. I had to re-normalize uh, my thinking, my perception of the world and what mattered and what was important. Uh, so no, I didn't. I didn't even, I don't, I don't think I ever even got her name. I'd have to look back at what I submitted in writing, but I don't think I ever uh, got her name. Um, so no, I didn't. I did not. And and the journalist who was writing an article about her, uh, I guess you never saw that article. No, I, I assume she wrote it, um, but uh, and I don't know if my story would be part of it. But um, but no, I, I never. I never looked for or thought about that that article again. This was like an explosion, it was like a yeah. um, a cleansing or, or complete purging of, of uh, boundaries of reality for me. Uh, and so the, those kinds of practical, which I wish I had done in retrospect, things just didn't occur to me at the time. Well, it, it does sound like a, a, a very transformative experience. I'm not sure that I would call it a near-death experience since it, it sounds like uh, it occurred even before the accident happened. It wasn't the result of the accident. Yes, I, and it, it uh, yes, you're absolutely right. And it, it kind of fits within what people have described uh, as an NDE, and what induced it, I don't know, it would have been the field effect of this woman. Um, and, you know, I didn't have the classic kind of going down a tunnel and seeing uh, deceased friends, etc., that are common among MDE, NDE experiences. Um, I had some of that in the in the night after we returned after we got to her house after the accident, but the accident was not severe enough. I don't remember it being severe enough to actually create a true near death experience. It was a nasty blow on the head, uh, but not not what would be a classic NDE. 
It, it sounds like probably what we would call a, a mystical experience or an out-of-body experience. I, I mean, it, obviously, it shook you to your bones. And, uh, and as you say, you were a different person the next day. Right. And I guess, yes, certainly it was a mystical experience and definitely an out-of-the-body uh, experience. And those two, I think, aptly describe it. Um, the merging with this infinite loving white light um, it is something that when I meditate now, I can still, I can and still do go there. And it's a profound centering and sense of equilibrium in Zazen tradition is a, a word of equanimity an absolute balance of all things that are right and enveloped in love. And that sounds like a cliche, but it wasn't a kind of passive uh, love like in Popcoon. It was a transcendent love without boundaries, uh, black and white, hate and love, uh, all the opposites were resolved. So that place internally now, when I go to it in meditation, is still maybe the most significant result of that experience. Now, by the time I met you, it would have been five years after that. And uh, at, at that point, you were already connected with Arthur Young. In fact, uh, that's how I met you, is, is because you, you sponsored a seminar, as, as I remember, at Berkeley with Arthur Young, and I attended. Yes. Um, you know, I went, after I left, I, I went to the University of Pennsylvania. It was an MD-PhD program, and I went to the University of Pennsylvania. It would have been 1969, and uh, Arthur Young came to the university to give a talk, and I knew nothing about him, and I went to his lecture, and, and, and honestly, everything he was saying I thought was utter nonsense. <laughs> and he and I got into, you know, this sort of hefty exchange and uh, afterwards, I was sitting on the steps outside of the lecture hall, and Arthur was leaving, and he turned around, and he came back over to me, and I apologized to him. I said, you know, I'm really sorry. I hope I wasn't being impudent or, or uh, rude. Um, and he said, not at all. And, and he, he said, I enjoyed your discussion. He said, you know, I hold uh, meetings at my house uh, every, you know, on once a month on a Saturday morning. Would you like to come? And I said, I, said, I have physicists and physicians and astrologers and um, I, I hold these, we have interesting discussions. So I said, sure. And that's how I met Arthur. And then when I came back, and then I, I took a year off and went through Europe, the Near East, North Africa. And um, th this is another significant kind of data point in our discussion. Um, in the course of wandering around, I found myself on this little Greek island of, of Tinos. Um, and Tinos is like, for the Greek Orthodox, it's like Lourdes for uh, Christians. And Tinos is a place where miracles have occurred. And it's a small chapel. And uh, a lot of Greeks make the pilgrimages to this chapel. And I happen to be on this 
island when all of these people were descending. And I didn't see limbs regenerate or eyes regenerate, but I did see people who were clearly in extreme pain, gnarled hands, um, various degrees of, you know, uh, cardiopulmonary distress. Um, and they would go into this, this little chapel and they'd emerge much improved. And I, I was stunned because nothing about what I had learned in biology and physiology fit this. So when I came back to UCSF, that's when I did the research on the adept meditators because I wanted to understand how a person's belief how uh, could overwhelm or self-regulate their biology. And in the course of doing that, I met up with other people in San Francisco in the greater Bay Area, and I began to realize that there was interest in what Arthur Young had been talking about. So I told Arthur, now he and I stayed in touch while I was wandering around. Um, so I told Arthur about it. And uh, so I invited him to the seminar that you uh, attended. Uh, and then subsequently through another whole set of unquote unusual circumstances, uh, met uh, Hal Putoff and Russell Targ who were at Stanford Research Institute and uh, got Arthur then to come out to SRI and begin to give lectures there. And he just had a, a wonderful time, just a total immersion in like-minded, brilliant people. Uh, he also met at the time, and I did as well, uh, Ed Mitchell, who had just, uh, re was, you know, just returned from the moon and was founding the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And this was just a field day for Arthur. And that's what led Arthur, when you met him and when we began our work together with him, uh, to found the Institute for the Study of Consciousness in Berkeley, was finding all of these uh, kindred spirits. Uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. So it was a very uh, special time, very magical time. Now, the experience that you had when you began to see your life unfold, uh, did that remain with you? Did you realize when you met Arthur that uh, this was something that had been part of an earlier vision? It was. And it was a, in my vision, it was the meeting with the magus, the magician. Um, and uh, Arthur fit the vision or the description of the person I saw that I would meet and would have a subsequently, you know, major impact on my life, um, which Arthur did. And, and when I saw him, I immediately kind of, oh, I recognize you. Uh, that happened after he had come to Berkeley. It wasn't an Kind of, it wasn't an immediate sense of, oh, I know this man when I first saw him in Philadelphia. But after I got to know him, I kept saying, there's something very familiar. And then it dawned on me when I had seen him and what that part of the vision was. And, and many of the things are like that. I don't always know at the time, oh, this is what was predicted or what I saw. But when you're in the middle of it, suddenly a light will go off and go, oh, I remember. I remember now. And it kind of convinces you that you're on the right path. Um, but that was part of the experience with, with Arthur. Um, so, yes.
Yeah, that was a very significant time. And, and I suppose it's worth noting that prior to your uh, even going to this party where you met these two women and, and the event sort of began at that point, you're already practicing Zazen meditation. Yes, I, I actually became interested in uh, meditation. And there was a course uh, that was being given actually on the Berkeley Summer School campus on uh, on zazen meditation and so i thought well sounds kind of interesting so i i had already had an interest and one of my earliest research projects actually before the study of the adept meditators was on uh, looking at transcendental meditation it was one of the very early studies that looked it was kind of a more detailed than you need but it was on field dependence versus independence and to the extent to which a person has an inner strong inner reality or feels independent of certain visual perceptions. And I, I did a study and demonstrated in fact that transcendental meditation induced the more field independence and a more internal locus of control. So that was my very first research project, again, even before the adept meditators. Um, so yes, uh, that was you know, part of the trajectory. So how would you say then that you became a completely different person? I think I gave up thinking I knew what was real and mm -hmm. being dogmatic that this is the way things are. Arthur, as you know, would always challenge, how do you know that? Have you considered this fact? Have you considered this perspective? Have you looked historically at why you believe what you do? Have you questioned the local reality? And I think the biggest change for me, how I became a different person, is Arthur taught me how to think, how to question, how to raise questions, how to answer questions. Still trying to do that to, to, to this very day. Um, and, you know, the, another kind of decade uh, was in the 1980s, where this, again, kicked into gear. Um, during the 80s, it was during when Reagan was president, and things were very strained between the United States and the Soviet Union. And Senator Claiborne Pell, whom I knew from Rhode Island, he was a U.S. senator from Rhode Island at the time, and created the Pell Grants for uh, oceanographic uh, quality, ocean, ocean quality wanted an exchange program between the Soviet Union and the United States that would not involve defense and not involve military matters. So he created an exchange program uh, around the space program. And so there were a group of us that went back and forth with the Soviet Union uh, in the 1980s, uh, traveled together uh, as a group, but it was an amazing group. It included uh, Mike Murphy, uh, John Lilly, uh, Andy Weil, <laughs> a great story with Andy, uh, John Mack, who uh, wrote the book on uh, production. Uh, and that time was, again, a time of just opening horizons because there's nothing to do in the Soviet Union. Uh, this was in the USSR days. Uh, you know, there's no TV, there were no distractions, and every Russian, I think, was uh, totally intoxicated after five o'clock. So there's really nothing to do at the nights except have 
really excellent discussions. And with this group, it was impossible not to. So again, it was this, the, the change was this openness, this receptivity to considering things um, outside of the conventional understanding of science and conventional understanding of boundaries of reality. Which, in a way, has been the theme of, of your careers uh, for the last uh, many decades. Well, thank you. I mean, I'd like to go. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the, my current work in, in epigenetics, uh, Mind is Sealer, Mind is Slayer, 1977. And that was mm -hmm. an outgrowth of the research with the adept meditators um, and also my initial uh, entry into Zazen meditation, which has progressed over time. I no longer do a formal Zazen. It's more like a Tibetan Buddhist practice, but it still began in a Zazen uh, fashion and then progressed from the, that, those mid-70s into the 80s uh, up to the uh, the present time. As, as I look at, at the work that you did, and we did an interview on uh, your work on epigenetics, I think a little over a year ago, uh, you're always sort of on the, the cutting edge of uh, what is possible to integrate into the mainstream. I think I've myself have been a little bit on the outside of that edge. Well, you're, you've pulled those of us who have less courage than you do, uh, maybe closer to that edge. I mean, I've, I've always tried to adhere to science. I, I like science. I believe in the scientific method, not in scientism. Scientism dictates a set of rules of how things are supposed to be and how you're supposed to study them and the methodologies and the markers that you use to prove your hypothesis. That's scientism, that's a dogma. Science is an inquiry. It asks what, it asks how, how do you know? What about this? What don't we know? How can we explore? So I, I've always been a scientist in that sense and I love finding ways in which something as esoteric as a mystical experience or a meditation or an NDE has measurable biological consequences in day-to-day -day reality. To me, that's fascinating. And when I first saw Jack Schwartz and other adept meditators, and Jack would take a sharpened uh, bicycle spoke and push it through his bicep. Now that takes a lot of effort, a lot of exertion, and there's all, there are also major arteries there. You said, do not do this at home, uh, kind of admonition. Um, when I saw that happen, and on all of the monitoring devices we had, the EEG and electromyography and cardiotechometer and respiration, and pulse and peripheral circulation, he looked as though he was on a beach and a vacation. That to me was, it still is, uh, astounding that that could happen. But it let me know that the mind was much more powerful than we give it credence. And with epigenetics, now is the realization that we alter the expression of our gene 
minute by minute, hour by hour, week by by week, by pharmacology, by our beliefs, by stress, by diet, by environmental impact. That to me is astounding. So the the discipline or the uh, scientism that the DNA is like an invariate computer, uh, hardcore, hard hardwired, is simply inaccurate. It's inadequate. It's not inaccurate, but it's inadequate to explain the reality that we we're experiencing. So I always look for those uh, kind of intriguing um, opportunities. Well, we're having this conversation now because, uh, as you explained to me, you watched a uh, program that I did with Evan Alexander and Karen Newell, and subsequently you have been in touch with Eben, and now we even have a live stream event planned for, uh, if I recall correctly, June 6th, Sunday, June 6th, when you and I and Eben and Karen will all be together. Now, in Eben's case, to me, it's one of the most remarkable medical miracles I can imagine. I understand his brain was filled with pus. When they did the uh, scan of his brain, they couldn't even see any contours of, of his cerebral cortex. Uh, he had a 1% chance of surviving and no chance whatsoever, I'm told, uh, of living a normal life again. And, and yet here he is functioning at a very high level uh, after having had uh, an experience in many ways comparable to yours. Well, I think his clearly is a near-death experience and his recovery is remarkable and 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 thanks to you and your conversations uh with he and karen is what made me really think you as you as a friend that i trust to have this conversation now is what gave me the courage to, to speak up and i am looking forward to the conversation that all of us have uh in in a few weeks um, uh, Eben told me an interesting story. He's probably told this to you, but there was one of the physicians, staff physicians, when he was in his coma, came in and saw him, looked at his chart, and just wrote him off. Thought, this is the dead man. And I guess it was probably 10 years later, uh, his son, Eben's son, was hospitalized. And, that's, and that surgeon who came into Eben's room uh, came, was the surgeon that took care of his son. And when Eben went to visit, uh, he walked into the room and the surgeon just blanched white. And he said, I thought you were dead. And, and Eben said, no, kind of like Mark Twain, results of my, the uh, rumors of my death greatly exaggerated. Uh, so it, it, it was clear that, uh, I mean, his recovery would, would constitute nothing short of a miracle given his, his medical diagnosis and state of condition in his physical brain. So I think he's had infinitely more, if you will, there are ranges of profound experience. I would say he has definitely summited Everest uh, with that experience of his. Well, I'm under the impression from your experience and from Eben's experience and from glimpses, I've only had brief glimpses of that kind of intense experience myself, but the impression that it leaves me with is that this reality that is so profound that it, it can regenerate a man's brain after he had been thought of as, as good as dead, that... Uh, 
we all have access to that. That, that seems to be the, the message of your experience. Uh, of that, I am certain. Um, one of the things that Evan and I talked about and, uh, and observed with him, with, with which he agreed, is I said, you know, if you look at something that lasts for, you know, 10 minutes, maybe 10 hours, in his case, a week, that something that is that finite in time has such a profound impact on a person's entire life before, during, and after is de facto evidence of a higher order of reality. That that few seconds in this transcendent state, in this transcendent existence, can so profoundly alter our perceptions, can have such an impact on our physical bodies, that that's de facto evidence that this is in fact a higher state of reality, that consciousness does hold sway over the material realm that we inhabit on a day-to-day -day basis, to me is a just a profound thought to explore. I don't have those answers, but certainly <laughs> the experiences have of myself and Evan and many others um, have made us all committed to finding out the answers. Now, you mentioned earlier, Ken, that there were events that you learned about back in 1967 that have yet to transpire. Uh, is, can you say anything about that? Is, is, is there some sense that you have about, let's say, this moment in time, the significance of it? Well, the most recent one, and I actually realized it at the time, was over the years, I've, I've, I've had access to the Dalai Lama on many occasions, one-to-one -one meetings and small group meetings. And in 2018, uh, the Dalai Lama and I did a, a presentation together in New Delhi. Uh, and uh, um, that was one of those benchmarks uh, because I knew in my... Uh, 1967 experience is going to be a meeting a small in stature man in a, in a saffron robe bald that was a world leader and with whom I would share a, a forum in a foreign land in particular in Asia I mean I knew general outline and, but nothing that, that the Dalai Lama had ever done was in Asia and I kind of, and I didn't realize it until just the day before he and I were meeting at this conference to give this lecture. And I realized, oh, this is one of those signposts. And this is, it's like finding, it's like if you were lost and you were looking for directions and suddenly you saw a sign that, you know, this way, 20 more miles. You go, oh, I get it. I'm on the right road. And it was like that kind of a, a a signal to me. And it's kind of a little anecdote, but the Dalai Lama is very precise about, you know, some such demand that when, when he says 60 minutes, that's it. He, he does 60 minutes and he leaves. And so we went for 60 minutes and I thanked him and uh, for, for his participation and what an honor it was. And he said, oh, I'm having a good time. Let's talk some more. And he stayed and interacted with the whole audience for another half hour. 
And and actually some of the more profound statements he made actually occurred probably in that half hour than our entire one hour. But that's an example. And and yes, there are things to come um, that I am aware of. Uh, I'd rather not say what they are, um, but yes, uh, kind of a to-be-continued previews of coming attractions, there's more to come. Well, your life, and I think to a large degree my life, has been involved in, in the human potential movement, in bringing to the public information about uh, the many positive things that are possible that human beings can do. And at the same time as we look out at, at the world as a whole, I get the impression that there are a lot of problems, that the environment is being degraded, that the human population as, as a whole is at risk because of our own behavior in, in many different ways. And I, I wonder if you have any thoughts about this relationship between human possibilities and human actualities. Profound question. Um, I'm reminded of the statement, think globally, act locally. And everything we've been talking about is really transcendent, is global, is beyond 3D everyday reality. But what it does to me, it serves as, uh, you know, I, I love sailing, as you know, it's like a rudder on a ship. And it says, here's what we need to do. There are solutions. I mean, I am guardedly optimistic, despite all the gloom and doom that there are extraordinary experiments taking place in carbon sequestering, in alternative energy sources, zero point energy, which is the current work of, of Hal Putoff, uh, that we are on the forefront of really beginning to realize that we can change our genetic predispositions, that we can uh, clear the oceans, that we can preserve life forms. I mean, there, there are you know, one of the my major philanthropies is uh, care of marine animals, orcas, uh, whales, dolphins. And uh, in doing that, in focusing on them, we become aware of the oceans and the necessity of clearing and clarifying the oceans. So in each of these, I can't think of a single area where there isn't a significant person or group of people who have positive solutions. They're small, they're underfunded, they may not be obvious at this point, but they're there. And I think they're coalescing and collecting into solutions that will sustain us even through this very dismal time. So despite what you and I see and the reality of the difficulties around us, I am actually profoundly optimistic that we will make it through this and uh, in it, in in a, and be the better for it, ironically. Well, it, it certainly would seem from your experience that we may be uh, getting help from invisible sources. <laughs> uh, certainly inspiration. I mean, metaphysicians for centuries are talking about the higher selves, uh, contact the God goddess, uh, the, the, the Brahma, the Atman, uh, and in meditation meditation practice and in various kinds of states. So unequivocally, inspiration comes from something that's not obvious. 
it, it comes in a blinding flash of insight. Uh, it comes from daring to try things that no one has ever tried before. Um, discovering the world occurred because someone thought maybe there is a passage to India and they were going to try it in ships that I would never venture out onto the ocean with. Um, so sometimes uh, these, these brave adventures uh, have, have the promise of, 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 of great positive outcomes. Well, Ken, this has been a great pleasure uh, having this conversation. I certainly feel like I know you a lot better than I did just uh, a couple of weeks ago, even after having known you for many decades. Uh, before we conclude our discussion today, is, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, except to thank you. Uh, I mean, I think your programs, your your interviewer abilities, your courage um, is very significant. Um, you're reaching hundreds of thousands of people with credible information from resources of whom you demand a lot. You want them to speak out, to be heard. And I appreciate this conversation. And through viewing your interviews, I've gotten to know you over the years, and it's been a great pleasure. And uh, I look forward to many decades to come. So thank you uh, for today. Sincerely, thank you. Well, thank you, Ken, from the bottom of my heart, because you, you've shared something very profound. It's touched me deeply, and I expect it's going to touch many other people as well. And uh, I know we're going to be together again in a couple of weeks, so I'm looking forward to it. Same. Thank you again. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. Mm -hmm.